Hey, this morning we return to 1 Kings. That's where we're at right now. We're having a series pertaining to Elijah. So today we return to Elijah. And a brief recap, in case you've missed some of the messages, we're now in our fourth message pertaining to Elijah. We'll have one more next week, another finale of our series on Elijah. But in case you've missed some things, a quick recap is that the first week we started in chapter 17 of 1 Kings. That's where we are introduced to Elijah. He suddenly comes upon a scene. We learn that he's a Tishbite. His name means the Lord is God. We found then that he's sent to the brook of Kareth, where the Lord provides food for him through the raven. He's later sent as the brook dries up to Zarephath, which happens then as we learn to be the center of Baal worship. And at the same time, he confronted all the false worshipers worshiping Baal to pronounce to them there's only one God which is what his namesake is. The Lord is God. From chapter 17, of course, we moved into the next chapter, chapter 18, and we found then Elijah called out to the people. And he said to them in verse 21, How long will you sway between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, well, then follow him. All that resulted in a confrontation between the Baal worshippers and Elijah. There was a wonderful and dramatic story of water-soaked, wood being ignited by fire. The Baal worshippers and their prophets could not ignite the fire of their dry wood. But, of course, our God, when Elijah called upon him, sent fire down, consumed the wood, consumed all the water around it, proven again, demonstrating the Lord is God, only he is God. So last week, we was in 1 Kings 19. We found Elijah flees from Ahab and Jezebel, the wicked woman, into Beersheba and ultimately into Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. Where the Lord asked him, what are you doing here, Elijah? As it was asked, remember that a windstorm passed by that shook the mountains. It was followed by an earthquake and also followed by fire. But the Lord was not in any of these forms, not in the earthquake, the fire, or the windstorm. The Lord appeared in a gentle, soft whisper. We applied that thought to our lives and said sometimes we find ourselves looking for an answer to prayer and we look for this big, grandiose fashion of an answer and a lot of times it's a quiet, gentle whisper in which the Lord speaks to us and gives us our answer we're looking for and so we need to be looking and listening for that quiet whisper rather than that big billboard announcement because most of the time the Lord will speak to us in that way. That's where we've been. Today we move on to 1 Kings 21. We find ourselves in a new situation pertaining to Elijah. It's not a lot of focus on Elijah today. He's in there certainly, yes, but it's also upon Ahab, which has been our two main characters all along. Stand with me today as we do to honor the reading of the word. We're in 1 Kings chapter 21. We're starting today in verse 17. We'll get some of the story beforehand after a while. But let us start in verse King, 1 Kings 21, and look in verse 17, where it says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to them, him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. 
Ahab said to Elijah, Well, have you found me, O my enemy? Elijah answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you provoked me and because you've made Israel to sin. And the Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. Well, then verse 25 says, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the people of Israel. But verse 27 says this, When Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted, and lay his sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab himself humbled before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. The Father, Lord, today we look upon this text and we pray, Lord, as we look through it and begin to maybe even dissect it, that we could take what's happening in Ahab and Elijah's life and parallel that to our lives and let us have some understanding of the text, but also see how we can have modern-day application. So ask now your spirit will lead and guide today, Lord, that these words are not mine, but the words you want us to hear today as it pertains to our lives in which we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, if you've been following the stories each week, you're aware that our last reading, I even mentioned it during the introduction, during a little bit of a recap, on Elijah came from chapter 19. But oddly, as you're looking through the pages of 1 Kings, we don't learn anything about the prophet, any more about him until chapter 21. You would think the continuation of the story would be in chapter 20, but it's not the case. So as the reader's going through 1 Kings, you don't learn anything about Elijah now except for his successor being called, which is Elisha, at the end of chapter 19. You hear nothing about him once again until now. But notice now God brings the servant, his servant, the Lord is God, Elijah, into center stage once more to confront the king. It's still Ahab. And look at the text once more in verse 19 as God tells Elijah precisely exactly what to say to this evil king. He first of all says, have you killed and also taken possession? That's the first words that Elijah says to Ahab when they come together again. Now we'll explain that in just a moment because it looks unorthodox to be positioned there, positioned there and they're having that question. So we'll explain in a minute. But notice further. He says also, Elijah, to Ahab, a rather interesting comment. In the place where dogs lick up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Now I'm looking at that, reading it, and getting ready for this morning, thinking that's a great comment. I mean, that's just a great statement. I mean, that's good stuff. Don't you think that's good stuff? 
Now, I'm thinking to myself, how many of us, as we think about in the place where dogs lick up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood, I'm thinking how many of us would like to say that to our boss or maybe our coworker? Or maybe that person that gets on our nerves at school. You guys have people at school you can't stand? Love them anyway. All right? But how many of us have people just get on our nerves and we like to tell them, look, the God has told me that you're going to lick up my blood or your blood in this one spot if you don't quit it. It's like when Sheila was working in Mount Pleasant, there was this woman who was her boss. And, and Sheila, we were about to move to Indiana from Texas. And the boss got kind of wicked with her. I mean, Sheila told her these words. Not so much exactly. Sheila's not in here at the moment. You can share that with her later. And she ain't telling Danny that. You know, Danny's her boss now. She ain't about to tell Danny that. I don't think so anyway. But beware. She has that side about her. All right? But how many of us would just like to say that to someone? When the place where the dogs lift up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs look up your blood? I think that'd be great to say to somebody. But don't do it unless the Lord asks you to and leads you to, okay? All right, you didn't get it from me. It'll be the Lord leading you. But returning to the text, look again. It's a weird statement. Yeah, but preceding that weird statement is the question. The first thing Elijah says to Ahab is, have you killed and also taken possession? Well, it seems odd with that being there, and it begs for some sort of explanation, so let's do so. Because what's happening is Elijah is being sent by God once more as he sends Elijah continually to Ahab to confront him. So now Ahab is confronting Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel because they're always doing something together. Their normal pattern of Ahab and Jezebel is that they're always up to no good doing their typical evil, wicked things. And the specific evil, wicked things that they've done, their situation occurs in the verses preceding where we started our reading. We're not going to read the entire text, but let me recap it for you. Because it involves a vineyard in Jezreel owned by a man who is now in the text with us, Naboth. And the king, again, we know him as Ahab, desires to acquire the vineyard. But Naboth refuses to sell it to the king with justification that it's okay by the law of Moses not to give it to him. In 1 Kings 21, look in verse 2. Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden. Then jump to verse 3. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father. So Naboth just refuses to do it. So the refusal to sell, King Ahab then, look at verse 4, reacts like a whipped pup or like a little child has been told no. Verse 4, Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen. Later on in verse 4, it says, He lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. What a big baby the king is, all right? But as the story goes now, as it's happening to Ahab with the refusal to sell the vineyard, his wife Jezebel emerges from the scene and sees her husband all vexed and swollen and all kinds of different things, laying on the bed, having this bad little moment, you know, little crybaby, and she takes matters into her own hands. 
it's like Jezebel, just as one of those type of women, men listen to me, that just don't like to hear the word no. You might know somebody like that. All right? But listen what happens now in verse 7. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? That's kind of sarcastic and rhetorical. Ahab's not about to answer the question. He says, Arise, she says, Arise, Ahab, and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in the city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and send, set Naboth at the head of the people. And set two worthless men opposite him. And let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Take him, so, take him out and stone him to death. So as a result of the refusal, Jezebel takes matters in her own, own hands, again, doesn't like to hear the word no, and sends out letters to powerful leaders and elders of Jezreel. The entire intention here is to entrap Naboth, as you can search in the text, with false charges of offenses and blasphemy. So look what happens in verse 14. They sent, I mean, they did exactly as Jezebel said to do. They were probably afraid not to. And sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. Then look in verse 15, right after that. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, her husband, the king, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it, and then leads right into where we started, where Ahab heard the question from Elijah, are you killing and taking possession? It was all a result of Naboth's death. It's all a result of false charges. He was executed. He was stoned for these trumped-up false crimes. And all of his land was gobbled up by Jezebel and Ahab. So basically, every action by Jezebel, with Ahab's knowledge and awareness, was made trumped-up charges or an entrapment against Naboth with intent to murder, simply to gain a vineyard or some land he refused to sell to the king. That's the essence of the text. But of course, here's the thing we have to recognize. The murder of Naboth did not go unnoticed. Notice how Elijah is sent to the king. He's sent to Ahab. I mean, just as it was with Cain killing Abel, or even better, David killing Uriah, God knows all the different circumstances unfolding in these lives, and now he sends his prophet Elijah to confront the king directly. All that provides a central theme for the message, which is this. Sin never goes unnoticed. And always, always has consequences. Now, that is true for every person in this room, in this city, in this state, in this country, and in this world. That's the truth for all people. It's precisely what happened to David with the sin of Bathsheba. I mean, he thought he got away with it. 
until Nathan the prophet, like here with Elijah sent to Ahab, Nathan was sent to David to directly confront him on the sin he had with Bathsheba. And then David realized he'd been found out. Nothing is hidden from God. Sin never goes unnoticed. And sin always has consequences. But as much as that is true, look back in verse 20, returning to the text. Notice, if you will, as we make that pronouncement of that truth and the theme, notice how the beginning things unfold with the exchange between Ahab and Elijah, if you will, for a moment. Again, Ahab said to Elijah, Oh, who have found me, my enemy? Well, Elijah answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. You may remember previously in chapter 18 how Ahab called Elijah the troubler of Israel. But now he makes it more personal. There's no longer calls him the troubler, but now calls the prophet, the man of God, my enemy. And Elijah responds much as he did in the earlier encounter, claiming that he, that Elijah, I mean, that yeah, that Ahab, Ahab is the reason that he's being pursued for himself because he's the one that's doing the evil deeds. So truth be told, it's Ahab that's fighting against the Lord. So Ahab was his own enemy and brought upon himself the sentence that Elijah had pronounced. Now you do remember the sentence Elijah pronounced, right? We began to unfold it earlier, but in case you forgot, look again. In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. That, that's the sentence pronounced upon him for all the evil practices and deeds he's done with idolatry and now even the murder. I mean, it's like, he, it's like he's guilty. His guilty blood is going to be licked up by the dogs. I'm thinking, how worse could it end for a king? That's got to be the ultimate worst scenario for the king to end his reign. But essentially, the evil plot against Naboth brought God's wrath against Ahab. And then the pronouncement of his forthcoming fate, including the deaths of Jezebel and Joram, also stated, I mean, it gives him the thing about the, the dogs licking up the blood. But look also in verse 21. I mean, it continues. The sentencing, the pronouncement of the judgment continues. Verse 21, behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I don't hear one. I don't ever want to hear the Lord tell that to me. I will utterly burn you up. Will cut off from Ahab every male. Verse twenty-two. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah, for the anger in which you provoked me. And a Jezebel. Okay, your wicked, evil wife. The Lord said, "The dog shall eat." Jezebel. This is not just looking at the blood. Look at it again. The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Of course, anyone who belongs to Ahab, the dog shall eat also, it says here in the city, anyone outside the hep, the birds. Now, you're thinking, okay, that's a pretty severe, pretty weird way of saying judgment on somebody. Did that really happen? Yes. Go read chapter 22, the last chapter in 1 Kings later. You're going to find in verse 38. It doesn't occur here where she's eaten by the dogs, but go look in verse 38. 
it certainly tells us that what was said here of the judgment for Ahab and for Jezebel ultimately does come true. Now, how could you imagine a worse death perhaps than eaten by a dog? That's what happens to Jezebel. But it also gives us a central truth here that all of our sin and ultimately God's judgment will certainly be forthcoming in every person's life. Matthew Henry points us to the truth that as we think about that particular truth that was mentioned here of how God's judgment will certainly come upon everyone in life, Matthew Henry points us out for us pretty quickly, just one sin is actually justifiable for that pronouncement of judgment. But so often the case is not just one sin in our lives that brings in forthcoming judgment. Referring to the actions of Ahab, he observes this and states, the very bad character that is given of Ahab, which comes in play here, to which God justifies the heavy sentence passed upon him, is duly noted and Ahab had it coming. But yet observe that God would not have punished him so severely if he had not been guilty of many other sins, especially idolatry. So if you take that what's happening to Ahab and now begin to apply that to our lives, recognize how we're not much unlike Ahab. We may not do the same evil, dirty practices. But as it was for Ahab, we also have multiple sins. Again, just to make sure we're clear, one sin, just one sin, offends God and is enough for judgment. But we don't commit in our lives just one sin. And if somehow, somewhere, we only had one sin, in our lives as sinners, we'd often repeat it. So ultimately, recognize how we become like Ahab. And we have a portfolio of sin. And remember, all sin offends God. So we should recognize this truth and self-examine ourselves and recognize our sin. In fact, it's the entirety of our actions, really, that we should evaluate and begin to look at. Or perhaps more importantly, our heart. Our heart is bent on evil. And God knows then, he knows if our heart is truly set on him. Or if our heart is, is set upon the sin, the temptation. I mean, it's so easy to justify and rationalize the temptation and the consequences will follow. But it's so easy at the moment to rationalize it. And God knows that if our heart is set on him or considering the temptation. We don't just have one sin. But if we did, we repeat it because we're sinners. And our heart is set on that. But as much as we are then sinners and perhaps even repetitious sinners, we still must acknowledge we have a loving Father. We have a slow to anger, merciful, abounding love God that we serve. So notice as we return to the text once more. Notice here, if you will, there's a rather unexpected turn in the storyline. Verse 27. So all this has happened. Ahab heard the pronouncement of judgment. And when Ahab heard those words, 
Look at his reaction. He tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But unfortunately, in the son's days, I will bring disaster upon his house. I'm reading through the text. I've heard the story before. I'm thinking, wow, this is quite unexpected. I mean, Ahab humbles himself, which is about anything you've heard or heard me say or read about Ahab, recognize this is the most positive act he's had throughout anything we know about Ahab. So it's quite unexpected. I mean, in the account as you're reading through it, the reader don't even see this coming. But in verse 27, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, he fasted. He didn't say anything about the ashes, but everything he's doing is indicative as displayed through the Old Testament of all the actions of repentant heart. So it appears as though Ahab repented when he heard the word of the Lord and the pronounced judgment. And though he was the most wicked man of Israel, we observed then that God took mercy on him and prolonged his life. That's what happens at the end of the chapter. I mean, we paraphrased, we dissected, we explained a bit. And as we see all that unfold, we must now move to application because there's some application that emerges here that we must understand how that applies to our lives. And the first application then is this, a fourth. The condition of mankind is very miserable that has made the word of God his enemy. I'll let you think about that for a minute, but it's true for everyone. It was certainly true for Ahab. Ahab's life, I want to tell you, was miserable. He was married to a woman named Jezebel. It had to be miserable. I mean, his life was miserable, and it really was miserable simply because he repeatedly rejected the word of God and was given to him multiple times by Elijah. Now, as you ponder that, then you may think, well, okay, Ahab's life is miserable. Yeah, he's married to Jezebel, so it couldn't be good. But his life ultimately is miserable because he continues to reject the word of God. So as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking, how then does a person become like Ahab, an enemy of the word? And here's the way you become an enemy of the word. You First of all, by ignoring it and rejecting it. And just not accepting it as true. You become an enemy of the word of God by believing the word is inferior or insufficient, inadequate, and completely useless. Which, by the way, happens to be many people who live in the world today. They view the word of God in this way. Inadequate, insufficient, completely useless. Christianity.com says of the biggest criticism of the Bible is that it is no longer relevant. After all, the most recent events recorded in the Bible took place almost 2,000 years ago when Paul and the other disciples were spreading the gospel. And you may hear this from time to time. It's outdated. It's not useful anymore. It's not relevant to today's times. A Barna study conducted said a slight majority, this has got some good news, bad news, 
a slight majority of Americans agree the Scripture's message is particularly helpful. 54% say the Bible contains everything a person needs to live a meaningful life. That's the good news, perhaps. The bad news now is this. This view has fallen significantly since last year when over two-thirds of adults, 68%, affirmed the Bible as an important source of wisdom. So it's good news, bad news. It's, it's good that over half Americans still view the Bible as useful, but bad in that it's on decline. Less are seeing it useful. More are seeing it outdated. However, the truth really is this then. That cultures change, laws change, generations come and go. But listen, the Word of God is as relevant today as when it was first written. It's true. The Bible is just as relevant today as the day it was first written. So rejecting the Word of God, rejecting the truth, leads ultimately to an unhappy, miserable condition in life. As the point suggests, the condition of mankind is very miserable has made the Word of God his enemy. I mean, such a person's life, as you look upon someone who appears to be successful and happy and having all that, is actually just a facade. In their heart, it's likely, it's wretched and unhappy and miserable. All because they belong to the world and have sold themselves into sin. And in our text, this is Ahab. He sold himself into sin. He chose for himself the idolatrous worship of Baal. Even further, he condoned the murder of an innocent man, Naboth. All because Naboth wouldn't sell him his vineyard. It's remarkable, but Ahab is the epitome of a miserable man because he rejected the word of God. And he welcomed in a sinful alternative, which leads to the second application. That those that give up themselves to sin will certainly be found out sooner or later to their unspeakable horror and amazement. Early in the message, we made the observation, a central theme, that sin never goes unnoticed and always has a consequence. Ahab's initial sin was clear and simple. It was idolatry. And perhaps that constant sin of idolatry in Ahab's life opened the door for the next sin that we find, which was murder. And it often seems that one sin kind of breeds another. That continuation of sin results in sin after sin after sin. I mean, the, maybe the best ultimate illustration of that referred to earlier was David, as he had relations with Bathsheba. Found out that she was going to be with child. He had her husband Uriah come back from the from the uh, from war to be able to stay with Bathsheba. He wouldn't do it. So then David has to send Uriah back to the front lines and give a note for him to be positioned as such for him to be killed. I mean, David's sin grew and grew and grew one sin to another to another. But as we've already said here, sin always gets found out. Whether it's David or Ahab or Cain or whoever. Anyone's sin always gets found out. Again, nothing is hidden from God. 
our sins are known to God. All of our sin, when revealed, ultimately anyway, will have a consequence. All sin has a consequence. And, and we can live a life thinking, okay, we got by with something. God may have seen that, and we don't even recognize it at the, at the moment that God was aware of it. And later someone has to let us know that God saw that. He's aware of that. We're thinking, well, nothing has happened to me because of it. So also what we have is, is a delayed consequence. We've acted upon temptation, we've sinned, we partake, and we have a delayed consequence from the actions of the sin. All sin has consequence. It may be delayed. One commentary has said this way, all of our bad choices that result in sin have real consequences. Sometimes the results of our decisions are so delayed, we mistakenly think that we have escaped suffering for a bad choice or have gone unrewarded for a good choice. But ultimately, there will be a payday or a judgment day. Which is why it's always best to come true, confess your sin before God. Just admit that you're a sinner, that you need cleanse, and ask the Father to forgive you. And he does. The Father will forgive us as Psalms 103 verse 12 tells us, as far as the east is from the west, he will forgive you. His transgressions be removed as far as the east from the west. We have a merciful, loving God. He will forgive you. So come to him with a truly repentant heart. Come to him as Ahab appears to have done with a repentant heart. Our third application, we'll come back to that thought here in a moment about Ahab and his repentant heart, is that God can make the stoutest heart to tremble and the proudest to become humble. In the text, we find Ahab's humiliation as a result of the sins that were pronounced upon him. I mean, you got to think about it. In any Old Testament situation where there's a king, any king you think of in the Old Testament, Nebuchadnezzar, Ahab here certainly, Xerxes, it don't matter. They all have a lot of pride. And they have to have that pride to forgo. Actually, if you start thinking about it, even in today's world, if there's a king or a president or anyone who has any kind of position of authority, they have a tremendous amount of pride. Kind of got to play with their ego from time to time. But notice in the text that what happens to Ahab is when the message is given to him by Elijah concerning his fate, it frightens him. In verse 27, it says he, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth. I mean, this is new actions for Ahab. We've never seen anything like that for this man. In every story we've read so far, anything we talked about with Ahab, he's not had any remorse for any action, any evil he's done. In fact, when it suddenly occurs, we mentioned it earlier, it just took the reader by surprise when it happens here. I mean, but then again, we know that Ahab is not the first king humbled by God. I think the best example might be Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar thought he had everything. He thought he had done everything. He's walking along the palace, you know, on his wall, he sees that he's made all this beautiful Babylon, that he has done all this. As he says those words, what happens to Nebuchadnezzar, he's instantly put in the form of a beast, eaten from the field as, a, as an oxen would. And, and with Nebuchadnezzar, it's not just one or two days in which he's in the position to be humbled. 
It takes longer. If you know the text, you know it takes seven years in which Nebuchadnezzar's in the form of a beast eating grass like an oxen in the field. I mean, he was a proud, hardened sinner until God intervened and reduced his pride to nothing. And we see perhaps that's Ahab here, who finally heard the word of God. I mean, he tore his clothes, fear was upon him, he trembled, and he was humbled. As we see what appears to be that apparent repentant heart, which leads then, then to conclude in our last point, that a hypocrite, the yeah, I said a hypocrite, may go very far in the outward performance of holy duties and yet come short. When the old saying, as you probably know, maybe you've said it before, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you never fool who? You never fool our Father. You never fool God. He always knows. All of us know that God looks upon the heart, not the outward appearance. Man displays this beautiful outward appearance. Some men more beautiful than others. But man displays his more beautiful appearance to others on the outward side. The first Samuel 16 tells the story of Samuel's quest for the new king. Saul's been kind of demoted, if you will. And now all of a sudden the new king's going to be David. Saul has to go find, or no, Samuel has to go find the new king. So he goes to the house of Jesse. Seven brothers come in front of Jesse and Samuel at the house of Jesse and not one of them seven, although they look like they could be the king, on the outside, not one of them are pronounced to be the king. So in comes David, you know, the small, ruddy, handsome shepherd boy. And he's the one chosen to be the king. Samuel and everyone learns the lesson pronounced in verse 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now you place that truth in the text we've looked at today and reveals that anyone, anyone, anyone can have an outwardly appearance to be remorseful. Anyone can proclaim to have repentant heart. But it's truly only God that knows the heart. And the heart is what matters. In our text, Ahab seems to be, according to the text, verses 27 to 29, he seems to be sorry for his sins. Fear has struck him, and it seems to be repentant. Let me just tell you, you can write it down and listen to me. Putting lipstick on a pig doesn't change the fact it's still a pig. It might be a prettier pig, but to me, as I look at the pig, even lipstick on or off, it's still just bacon. And I love bacon. So putting lipstick on a pig doesn't change the fact it's still a pig. You can use it tomorrow at work or at school. But translated into this then, Ahab put on the garb and the guise of a penitent, repentant heart. Now perhaps you're thinking I'm being too critical, too harsh, maybe even being judgmental with Ahab. I mean the text, the text seems to say Ahab repented of a sin. But go read chapter 22, the next chapter. As you move forward to chapter 22, particularly verse 8, you find evidence his heart was not humble. It was not ultimately unchanged. 
In verse 8, you find the king of Israel, once again in Ahab, informed his counterpart, the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat. As the new prophet comes upon the scene, Micaiah, he tells Jehoshaphat, as Jehoshaphat is looking for a man of God, he said, I hate Micaiah, the man of God. Isn't that what he said about Elijah? I don't see anything change with the man. It's the same kind of scenario. So Ahab's repentance is only what might be seen of men. He still had hatred in his heart. So yes, we see a hypocrite may go very far in the outward performance of holy duties and yet come short. Now ponder that. Think about that. Maybe even apply that. Because the question now at the end is this. Did you know that you might be viewed as a hypocrite? We actually had a discussion Wednesday night in our study of Galatians. It kind of came up. But did you know that people may be thinking of you as a hypocrite? I mean, people are watching you. That may be unfair, but people are watching. And they're waiting for you to mess up. They know your faith. They know you go to church regularly. They know you're a Christian, but they're watching you, waiting for you to mess up, and ready to call you a hypocrite. I mean, it's not easy being a Christian. I'm not going to lie to you. Because every action you have is under a microscope. And your talk and your walk must be in alignment. We've got to ask ourselves, review this story, ultimately we ask ourselves, what is it? Is our walk and talk the same? Is it aligned? And remember what we find here, that you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you never fool God. And remember, God knows your heart. So come to God with a truly repentant heart. I mean, the best thing to do is confess your sins and desire to live a life pleasing to Him. Confess your sin and live a life desiring to please Him and Him alone. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message today as we continue to dissect the life of Elijah. It speaks to us each week, Lord, although written thousands of years ago, we see how it still applies to us in modern day. The Bible is real. The Bible is true. It gives us, Lord, wisdom. It gives us what we need to be doing in life to continue to live a life worthy of being called a child of God. We don't deserve such a label. But we truly appreciate, Lord, the fact that you gave us your son. So we can stand before you as we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because he's before you. And be called a child of God. So I pray then that all of us here today would hear this message and have that truly repentant heart. That we would not go through the motions, would not fake it to people, Lord. But would truly, sincerely have a heart bent on living for you and pleasing you. There'll be one here today that's never had the heart to change except Christ. I pray it could be so today. So let's heed the message and respond accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.